0: We are going to be continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 7. Chapter 7, we're going to be talking about singleness today. If you're a visitor with us say, well, that's an odd sermon. We didn't plan it for you. We just preach the next text next, and we've been preaching all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we talked about glorifying God in our marriages last week, the week before that. We talked about glorifying God with our bodies. This week, we're talking about glorifying God with our singleness. And just a few notes before we start. uh, If you're married, I don't want you to think, well, this sermon really has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. And you're about to see why. Single people, I don't want you to think with kind of dread. Oh, great. Here we go. Singleness can have its own challenges for sure. My aim is to build you up according to the gospel. By the way, if it seems a little dark up here, we just lost the lights above us. That's no big deal. Um, Hopefully you don't have any problems seeing me. I can see you. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or chapter 7, rather. Beginning in verse 17, I'm going to go ahead and read. I would have you follow along with me, beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. "'Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Well, let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision.' Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Well, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. If each one should remain in the condition in which he is called, were you a bondservant? Well, then do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, well, then avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he was called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I get my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, then don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, then you have not sinned. And if your betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as if they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those who had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties." Now, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, then let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever's firmly established in his heart being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, then he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, then she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and And I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, there's been no short amount of confusion on this topic, am I right? The topic of singleness, of if you're single, how to think about marriage, or if you're married, how to think about singles, Some of you have been in churches that, boy, they've done really well in this area. And others of you, perhaps, you've been in churches that maybe they've not done so well. There's been false guilt. There has been a feeling of maybe, if you're single, second class in the church. Well, I hope that even just from a bare reading of the text, you would find that that is not the way that the Apostle Paul views it. In fact, you notice here that the Apostle Paul seems to be Kind of making a strong argument to singles. Some would expect to stay single for life, and, and to these, Paul would, we would think, would seem to correct him, "No, no, no,, no, don't stay single. Go get married. That's God's design for you." But he summarizes in verse 38, ultimately what he's he does well, and if he refrains, he'll do even better. Well, What does that mean? If that's what Paul's saying, then really my aim to you is really to persuade all the young unmarried people here to think seriously about staying single. You say, what? That's exactly what I'm saying. Because I think that's what Paul's saying. Say, I don't know that that's what he's saying. Well, let's go through it together and let's see. Lots of qualifications need to be given. Lots of clarity needs to be provided. But in the end, I pray that it would be helpful. Notice in that opening paragraph that verses 17 and 24, they form a kind of inclusio, bookends. They both make the same point and they help us understand everything in between. And here's the point as you glance at them. That whatever your life was like before you became a Christian, whatever condition you're in, whatever station you find yourself in, whatever it may be, whether you're circumcised or not, Whether you are a slave or not, well, then you don't need to change that to become a Christian, and you don't need to change it to become or to stay a Christian. Because these things, at the end of the day, don't have anything to do with being a Christian or not. Rather, look at verse 23, you were bought with a price that is specifically with the blood of Christ. And by his blood, Christ has purchased your freedom. Here's the idea. That while you may not be physically circumcised, you are circumcised in Christ, and though you may not be free in this life, you are free in Christ. This means that you can be holy and happy in whatever circumstance you find yourself, assuming it's not harmful or sinful. And this principle of Christian freedom also applies to marriage. That's what we saw last week in the first half of of the chapter, It not only applies to marriage, but it also applies to singleness, and that's Paul's theme here in the second half of the chapter. And so some may have been saying to married people, you'd be more spiritual if you'd stay single. That seemed to be the the teaching in verse one that was circulating around the church. And maybe even others were saying to single people, well, you'd be more spiritual if you just stay married. And to both, Paul says, according to the principle of 17 and 25, you need to remain where you are. Now, that truth, I think, is a little bit less jarring for married people than it is for unmarried people. But if we're all going to profit from God's word, though, then we need to open ourselves up to receiving it as it is, and not just some sanitized version. We need to be okay with it challenging us and correcting us in light of our freedom in Christ. And that leads us ultimately to the main point this afternoon in verses 26 to 28, our first point. You can follow along in the back of the bulletin if you grabbed one of those. But the first point in verses 26 to 28, Paul says, stay single. What does he mean by that? Well, in verse 26, he returns to answering the question all the way back up in verse one. Apparently, some were saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman are probably better translated with his wife. And he's clear Paul is that his answer isn't an explicit biblical command here in verse 26, but it's his personal judgment. That means that we need to be really slow in rejecting his wisdom, even though it might be a right or a left issue, not a right or a wrong issue. He does say, don't dismiss it too quickly because in verse 26, I am one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. You can trust my wisdom. Don't dismiss it too quickly. Then Paul addresses both the married and the single people in verse 27 saying once again remain as you are. Paul is applying the governing principle from verses 27 to, or 17 to 25 to the end of his teaching on marriage and now here at the beginning of his teaching on singleness he's making a transition. And as I said last week, when Paul says, remain as you are, he doesn't just mean just stay merely. What he does mean is stop looking over your shoulder as if there's some secret to, the, to a greater Christian life that other people have that you don't, as if there's something that you're missing out on that will make you more holy and more happy than what you currently have by God's providence, as an illustration, I think we should look back at verses 7 and 9. We didn't look at it last week. I said we were going to return to it, and we are. He says, "'I wish that all were as myself am,' that is, unmarried, "'but each has his own gift from God, "'one of one kind and one of another. "'To the unmarried and the widows, "'I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am.'" But if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn or to burn with passion. In verse seven, Paul says, really, I wish everyone was like me. That is single. But married people have to recognize that marriage is a gift from God too. That was the point that he made in verses one through six. Marriage is a gift. And all the evangelicals said, amen. But Paul said, hold on a second, because singles have a gift too. So while all you married people should stay married, verse 8, I do wish that some of you single people would stay single like me. And all the evangelicals said, Boo. (laughs) Verse 9 is a tricky one to translate. That if you come to the verse assuming that God's best is for every Christian to get married, then you'll probably translate it in one particular way, something like this. Verse 7 I wish everybody had a sexual <clears throat> I wish everybody had this weird sexual gift of singleness like I have. I don't feel sexual temptation like other people do. So, verse 8, it's good to remain single as I am, but verse 9, that only applies to people who don't have these sexual desires that burn up with them. Well, how do I know, Paul, if I have this gift? Well, the interpretation might apply in this way. Do I have sexual desires? Am I aflame with passion? Well, if you are, that is, if you're attracted to other people, that you want to get married, well, then it's obvious that you're not one of those people with a special gift, and you can go join the singles ministry and get married as quickly as you can. That's what I taught, was taught when I was a single When Kathy and I were dating and considering marriage, I was counseled essentially along these lines. Jeff, if you want to marry Kathy, okay. You say you're attracted to Kathy. You need to ask God perhaps to take it away. And if he does, then you know you have the gift of singleness. And if he doesn't, well, then you need to marry the girl. And I think that was an attempt to faithfully apply the truths of verses seven to nine. And I imagine that something like that is how a number of us, if we were Christians when we were single, were counseled, or maybe even perhaps the way that we've counseled others. But I'm not so sure that's the best way to understand these verses. Because if we take the whole chapter, everything as a whole, uniting it around this central principle of remain as you are, then what we see is that Paul wants everybody to, whoever they are, wherever they are, to be less concerned about their present condition. And if that's Paul's emphasis, well, then verses seven and nine aren't trying to suss out the rare few that have this strange gift, but that Paul's actually trying to get single people to just stay single. And if that's a better way to understand these verses, and I think it is, then there's a different way of applying it. The first interpretation, I think, tries to divide two people into two groups according to kind. Those who have a gift of singleness and presumably don't have strong sexual desires and those who don't have the gift and should just get married. But I think the trouble with that interpretation is that it leaves a big awkward group in the middle. The people who are single and yet do desire to get married and are perhaps unhappy in their singleness and want to get married married one day. What do we do with those kinds of people? We have no bucket for them if we take that interpretation. They don't seem to fit into Paul's point if that's the point he's making. This seems to suggest to many of our single friends, some of you are in the wrong place and you better figure out what bucket you're in. And I think that's contrary to Paul's point. No, I think we should not look at verses seven and nine as if there's two barrels and that every single person needs to make sure as quickly as possible whether they're in the right barrel. Instead, Paul seems to be saying that as long as you're single for that entire time, whether as a young person or someone who remains single in the middle age before getting married or as a widow or a widower, he says, you need to think about your singleness the way that you are right now, this very second, as a gift. He's saying everything that's good about singleness is yours right now. Take advantage of your singleness as long as the Lord has you there according to his providence. In other words, the gift that Paul is talking about is not the gift of what you hope you may one day have, that you're a single person maybe hoping one day to be married or Lord forbid a married person becoming single. No, it's not an as you hope to one day be gift according to the theme of the chapter it is an as you are gift does that make sense as long as you remain single your singleness is a gift and if i get one day or if one day you get married then on that day and every day to follow is a married person then you say then god has now exchanged that gift for this gift let me drive the nail even further into the coffin of the two buckets way of understanding these verses What about those who were married but are now single? To those people, Paul isn't saying, Well, you were married. So obviously, because you got married and had sexual desires, you have the gift of marriage and not singleness. So you need to get married again as quickly as you can. Notice what Paul says in verse 40. He says of the widow, No, she's happier to remain as she is. That person who once gifted with marriage is now gifted with singleness. Isn't that remarkable? Now, if that's right, then when we look back up at verse 8, verse 8 isn't a hypothetical exception for only a select few who have that weird gift of singleness. It's a genuine piece of advice for every single, single person. Being single is a gift from God. And so think about remaining as you are. It also means that verse nine and not verse eight is the genuine exception here. A lot of times we look at verse eight and we think about these gifts and we think, well, the one who has the gift of singleness, that's the exception to the rule. And that's not to say that marriage won't be normative. For most people it is and it should be, that's okay. But in reality, I think if we reject the two buckets view and we lean into the reality the, the remain-as-you-are view of gifts, well then, what we have is verse 9 then is the exception and not verse 8. We reverse them. A lot of times we use verse 9 as what's normative, and verse 8 is the exception, right? Some, some of you might have this weird gift of singleness so don't get married, but verse 9, if you have sexual desires, you should get married, and that's normative, but I think it's actually the other way around. That whether you're single or married, both are a gift for as long as the Lord has you in that season. That's normative. But there are going to be a select few of you who cannot exercise self-control. And for you, there's an exception. Verse 9 is the exception, not the rule. I think we get it backwards. A few textual notes are important here. If you have an ESV translation, the word cannot may be better interpreted. I'm in verse 9. May be better interpreted. Do not. It's speaking more of an action than a state of being or an ability. And the word with passion, well, that's not even there at all. And some of you have a textual note at the bottom of your Bible. Literally, it's better that they don't burn. And so many translators understand that to mean not so much to burn up with passion, sexual desires, but rather to burn perhaps in judgment. And I think that would make sense of these verses in light of what we just saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter six. Remember, there were certain church members who were out of control with their bodies. Paul seems to say something like: Now, there are some of you that are an exception to the rule and you keep on sleeping with prostitutes. Stop it. Instead, get married. That if you're the exceptional Christian that will not control his body or her body, then it's better for you to get married and have sex with your spouse than to give yourself over to a life of sexual immorality. We just saw earlier up in chapter 6 that those who give themselves to that, those don't inherit the kingdom of God. No, you're a Christian. You need to live differently. Use your body differently. Well, that's not enough, I don't think. Then from verse 9 to conclude, well, I'm a red-blooded man or a woman, so I should just get married. I think that's the way many people read it, but I don't think that's the way we should read it at all. Sexual desire in verse 9 is not the issue here. As long as you have sexual desires, you should get married. The exception that is being applied in verse 9 isn't concerning sexual desire. It's concerning self-control. Self-control is the issue. You can't control yourself. By the way, one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Attaboy. (laughs) Do you see where Paul's going with it? This is the exception. You're worldly Christians. That it may be God's grace and kindness to you to get married so that your bodies and your enslaving yourself to your bodily desires don't don't end up leading you away from Christ and the gospel. Well, with all that in mind, I hope then that verses 26 28... It's a lot of front-end work, but I hope it helps to make a little bit more sense. I want to read him again with Paul's remain-as-you-are logic in mind. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, well, then you've not sinned. And if your betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul seems to be saying, if you're single, it is not a sin to get married. But prudentially, you should really consider remaining single like me. Why? Why? Well, first of all, Paul's going to give a couple of reasons. First of all, in verse 26, he's going to say, because of the present age in which we live, there is a present distress. What does he mean by that? We'll come back to it. But secondly, in verse 28, because of what marriage is like, that there will be worldly troubles for married people. And those are going to be Paul's two main arguments, two single people for why they should remain as they are. And he's going to expand on them beginning in verse 29 through verse 35. Reason number one, verses 26, consider the current condition. If you're following along in your, the outline in the handout, that he's going to expand in verses 29 to 31. And reason number two, verse 28, well, then consider what marriage is like. That's going to be further explained in verses 32 to 35. And just over the next few minutes, I want to dive into each one. Reason number one for why single people should stay single prudentially, according to the apostle Paul, consider our current condition. Verse 29, notice this gives us a time marker. The time is very short. And then verse 31 gives us another time marker. The present form of this world is passing away. And in between these two time markers, Paul tells us how to live on this side of Christ's return. He says everything in this world has an expiration date. Therefore, we need to think about our lives right now through that lens. Verse 30 the things of the world that make you mourn and rejoice, all of those things have sell by dates. That if you buy stuff, just know it's going to pass away. Verse 31, if you do business, deal with the world in such a way that you're not bothered by the world. Now what he's describing here, that's really attractive. And let me tell you, it's super easy to preach on, but it's hard to live. It's describing someone who isn't flustered over his affairs in the world. It's one who understands that his true investment is elsewhere in another world to come. And so he doesn't grow anxious about the things on this earth, things that thieves can steal and, and moths can destroy. Why? Because it's treasures laid up in heaven. That's Paul's point. The point is that the things of this world only have value now for a little while, for just the short little amount of time that you're here. Now, this says something really important to our culture about sex, doesn't it? Paul says, you can stay single, die celibate, and be content, remain as you are, if you know that this world is not all that there is, that Christ is sufficient, his promises are true, and therefore everything that you need does not revolve around sex or marriage or whatever. Is that a common message today? You bet it is. Some people try to figure out what exactly was going on there in verse 26. What is that present distress? Well, I think understanding it this way helps us understand what he's talking about. As I said, some people look at that present distress and they think they're talking specifically about an historical event relevant to the Corinthians. Maybe it's a famine or a persecution. Well, they would argue that whatever it is, don't get married until this cultural crisis moves on until that cultural storm is passed. That way you don't leave your family famished or impoverished, or you don't leave them widowed and without a dad or a mom. But that really doesn't seem to fit Paul's meaning. First of all, Paul's raising money from the Corinthians, not for the Corinthians. You can see that in his second letter. But also, verse 26, notice how he expands on its theme in verses 29 to 31. That if we understand the present distress in, verses, in verse 26 by Paul's explanation in verse 29 to 31, we do well. Some preachers and commentators recognize the link, and so either you have to read verse 26 into verses 29 to 31, and you see verses 29 to 31 referring to some impending historical event, a great financial depression, things are going to be really tough, don't be a buyer, don't do lots of business, nothing's going to be worth anything before long, and yet, We don't find that anywhere, really, in the New Testament. What we do see over and over and over again in the New Testament is that we live in the last days between Jesus' ascent to heaven and his return. That we are in a long period of time that seems really long to us, like a thousand years, Peter says, but it's only like a day to the Lord Jesus. And there's a sense in which this whole time should be understood as a time of trouble and distress. Always... As we live, we're going to buy stuff, we're going to do business, and we're going to get married, and we're going to stay single. But we do that ultimately understanding ourselves as citizens of another kingdom. This world is not our ultimate home. That means that Christians make all kinds of weird decisions about their businesses and even about remaining single because of this framing reality. And so first of all, Paul says, I want you to consider remaining single because the world is passing away and marriage is passing away with it. It's a temporary institution. The Lord Jesus said that in heaven, uh, no one will be given away in marriage or be married. Now I think we're gonna know one another in our glorified bodies, but marriage is an earthly institution given to us for a specific purpose on this side of the resurrection. It's It's a momentary reality. And when you begin to realize that, all of a sudden, singleness and this deep urge to be married is brought into a different light and proper context. It's a good thing. Perhaps you might pray about it, consider it. Perhaps the Lord might provide it. Praise God if he does. That would be a gift, but so is singleness. And your ability to think about your singleness in this way It's by understanding that this world is passing away, and because this world is passing away, marriage isn't everything. Do you get that? That's Paul's first point. That when you're thinking about your singleness, my first reason for telling you to remain single is because it's all passing away anyways. But secondly, reason number two in verses 32 to 35, he says, I want you to consider what marriage is like. And all the married people in here are gonna go, amen. Let's look at verses 32 to 35. Pile up all the ways, look at this, all the ways that Paul speaks about Singleness, just scan through it, free from anxieties, pleasing the Lord, anxious about the things of the Lord, not about worldly things. Imagine if you went down the street to recycle books, and you found a Christian book with the title, The Secret to a Happy and Holy Life. You go, oh, that sounds pretty interesting, and you pull it off the shelf, and you open it up, and you look at the table of contents, and you see, here they are. Chapter 1, The Secret of Being Spared Worldly Troubles. Well, I'd like some of that. Chapter 2, The Secret of Being Freed to Please the Lord. Amen. Chapter 3, The Secret to Not Being Divided. Well, I don't want any division. I love unity. Chapter four, the secret to being holy in body and spirit. Or chapter five, the secret to maintaining good order in your life. Or chapter six, the secret to securing undivided devotion to the Lord. You, you go, man, I am tracking with all of that. I want a happy and holy life. I want all of those things. And then you turn the book to the back and you go, what is he talking about? What's the secret? And you dig in the book and you discover, here's the secret. Stay single. Record scratch. You go, yeah, that's not so much for me. You put that back on the shelf. I ain't getting none of that. Where the comic books? You'd quickly put it back and you would think, what kind of crackpot monastic ridiculousness is this? But you realize when you look at all of the blessings that singleness brings, that's exactly what Paul says. This is his argument. Verse 34 presents us with the key contrast. And his interests, speaking of the married man, are divided. The unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, about how to please her husband, Married people are anxious about worldly things, how to please their spouse. Single people have the joy of being anxious about pleasing the Lord, is what he's saying. This is his argument. Now understand, this isn't ultimately a criticism of married people. Don't take it that way. As if the husband in verse 33 should really just kind of snap out of it and not be concerned about worldly things anymore. Now, the worldly things that are talking about here is how to please your wife, and that's a good thing. That is the ministry that God has given to husbands. If you're married, this is the ministry that God has given to wives. If you're married, that is how. As a married person, God has appointed you to serve the Lord. Remember his point, remain as you are. So married people, don't look over your shoulder. Don't look at those singles and go, man, I sure wish that i go back to before I got married, all the things I could do for Jesus if I were just single again. That's not his point. He's trying to persuade singles of the goodness of remaining single, much to their chagrin, no doubt. But he says, I'm a trustworthy guide. And he says in verse 32, here's the real benefit. It's a play on words compared to what we just saw in verse 34. He says, if you're single, then you're mostly free to be anxious about one thing, and that's serving the Lord and how to please him. I'm not sure this... Reason to remain single gets communicated clearly enough from our pulpits. The world says sex is bad. Don't do it. Get married so you can. That's the only real escape from sexual immorality. And I think that tends to undermine and hijack Paul's teaching here. We tend to emphasize so much of the goodness of marriage and sex within marriage, and rightly so, that we often stop short of saying, yeah, but singleness is a gift too. It could be a wonderful place of undivided devotion for as long as the Lord has you there in this world that's quickly passing away. One of my favorite authors is the late John Stott, single his entire life, never married. Amy Carmichael, the missionary, David Brainerd, missionary. One of my favorite present-day authors, Vaughn Roberts, is presently single, and one reason he's able to produce so much helpful material for Christians in churches is because he saw the potential for serving the Lord as a single, and he remained as he was, and he saw it as a gift, not because he, not because he had some kind of like mystical revelation that he was given this gift. He just recognized prudentially, this is a good way for me to serve the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm able to exercise self-control, and so I'm going to go in, and I'm going to go hard for the building up of the church. Praise God. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian who's married. That's not Paul's point. You can do good Christian work while you're married. But I think we've tended to so focus on the family, and we tend to do it so strongly that not enough single men or women or widows take seriously Paul's admonition to remain single, about being anxious not for worldly things that come with marriage, but about godly things. And so they end up trapped in this weird place often in our churches as single people with no perhaps immediate prospects but with great sexual desires and desires to be married and they think I ain't got a bucket in this church. That is not the way the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ should be. Single brothers and sisters, let me just say to you, you belong. Not ultimately because you're single, Or not because you may one day be married. You belong because you are in Christ. And we enjoy communion with you in Him. And so I praise God for singles in our own church who are able to do what married people cannot. I praise God for you, brothers and sisters, and I want to encourage you to contentment as you are for as long as God has you there and to use it for an undivided devotion to serving God and to see that as a gift for as long as the Lord gifts you with it. Whether here in our church or someplace else, perhaps even overseas, we'd be happy to equip you, send you, fund you. We would love to do that. So Paul says, stay married, or stay single, rather. Here's my two reasons. The world's passing away, and think about what marriage is like. Think about all the blessings that could come in serving the Lord as a single person. What a gift for as long as the Lord gives it to you. Remain as you are. Well, finally, this is really the second main point in my sermon. It's not an extra long one, but in verses 36 to 40, I just, I called the point, get married or stay single. What to do? Isn't that really what we always want the Bible to do? Just tell me what to do, Paul. Tell me to get, what I'm supposed to do to get married. Tell me whether I'm supposed to stay single. Tell me if there's some magic rabbit I can pull out of the hat to know which one it is. And Paul, like every good apostolic author, is not going to give it to you. And that can seem a bit confusing, doesn't it? Here we go. Paul lays out all these huge reasons to say single, but then seems to settle into kind of a half-hearted, well, you know, get married if you like, or don't, you know, whatever, in verses 36 and following. And that can be a little frustrating, can't it? We want, we want somebody to just tell us what to do. But beloved, I think that reveals more about us than it does about Paul's teaching, what we expect from God and, and from one another so we hear things like spared worldly troubles, free to please the lord, undivided devotion and we almost expect him to say well then it's a sin to be married. But he already said that's not what he's saying. He says, "I just want you to consider it. There's lots of advantages. Both are good. Both are gifts." If you're single and you're feeling chapped by this chapter, thinking, well, I really want to be married, but this is forcing me to do something else that I don't want to do or think in ways about my singleness that I don't want to think about, then you may have Paul's teaching wrong. Likewise, if you're married and you're thinking, man, I am so anxious about marriage-related things. This is filling me with regret that I made the wrong decision. I wish I can go back to being single so that I can just let it rip. Then you're thinking about it Wrong. Paul says, I say these things in verse 35 about singleness, not to lay a restraint or literally a noose on you. This chapter is all about Christian freedom. It's all about liberty, about not being afraid to remain in the state that you are as if you might not be able to please the Lord if you do. If you're married, remain as you are and please the Lord there. If you're single, remain as you are and please the Lord there. Don't be anxious about having to get to that other season in order to really please the Lord or have him really be happy with you. You have been bought with a price. He's purchased your liberty such that you don't have to look at any of your circumstances and wonder whether or not you're more or less pleasing to the Lord. You're pleasing in the Lord because you're in Christ, not because you're married and not because you're single. you realize how that frees us up now to be less anxious about remaining as we are? Praise God for that. He says, I don't want to put a noose on you. I'm not trying to choke you out and to get one direction or the other. I just want you to be wise with how you consider your life in light of the gospel. So think about it. Be wise. There are real prudential re- reasons to consider staying single. And if you choose to do so, then Great. But if you choose to marry, that's okay too. For as long as you're single, that's a gift of God to you. And should the Lord one day grant you marriage, that will be a different gift of God to you finally notice that he gives this advice not only to singles but also to engaged or betrothed people in verses 36 to 38 and then finally to widows in verses 39 to 40 to single people he says consider remaining as you are but if you're engaged and you decide to go through with it well then good for you you do well in my opinion he says for the reason i've listed above the single person might do a little bit better a little awkward but remember what he says hey this is just my judgment This isn't a command from the Lord. I'm just giving you my own opinion on the matter. You might consider these things. To the widow, he says, if you remarry, marry in the Lord. Marry another Christian. But in my judgment, not God's judgment, but Paul's personal judgment, he says by marrying another Christian, you not only honor the Lord, but you save yourself a bit more worldly trouble than if you married a non-Christian. But if you had to, I would just encourage you to remain single and go all in on serving the Lord. Do you see his argument? you see how the remain as you are logic reshapes how we think then about singleness? Whether for a short time or a long time, as long as you're there and remain in that season, it is God's gift to you. Leverage it for the glory of God. And if you get married and in marriage that marriage brings with it worldly troubles, then have those worldly troubles, your anxiety about pleasing your wife, about pleasing your spouse, have that be your ministry in this world. It honors God and it's a gift for you. You may not be able to do everything that that single people are able to do and single people ain't gonna be everything that you're gonna be able to do. And that's okay. There's wisdom from God in both seasons. Remain as you are. How do we apply this? Just let me just wrap it up. What does it look like to be the kind of church where single people can consider being single and perhaps even staying single and have that not be a weird or scandalous thing? As Paul seems to suggest here, it's not weird at all. Number one, first, we have to guard Christian liberty. Notice in our passage, that the person is free in Christ to make their own choice. Verse 36, if anyone thinks he or she needs to do their own thinking about what it looks like to behave properly. He says, let him do as he wishes given his circumstances is what he believes is best. And if that's best and he believes that that's what's most honoring the Lord, he's free to make that decision. That's the nature of Christian Liberty. And so we cannot put pressure on people either way, pressure on single people to get married as fast as they can or else or pressure on single people to stay single or else. I wonder if there might be an uneven pressure from some of our families, even toward our own children. A pressure to marry as if that's the most godly thing that they could possibly do, is it? In our teaching of our children about what God might have for their life, is there as much of the second half of 1 Corinthians 7 in your instruction as there is the first half of 1 Corinthians 7? Paul doesn't seem to think that marriage is in every instance the most godly thing that one can do, though it might be normative. If any of our children decided to remain single and abstinent for the sake of serving the Lord in and, and his or her church, or going on in the mission field, or, or just leveraging a singleness for the Lord, then, then brother or sister, don't grumble against the Lord. Don't make them feel guilty for not giving you grandchildren. Christ purchased for them the freedom to do otherwise. And you should encourage them in it, just as we see Paul doing here. As long as the Lord has you there, my son, my daughter, I'm going to encourage you and pray for you that you would leverage your life for the glory of God in service to his church. And be happy with that. Praise God for that. Not to use their singleness as, as a means of worldliness, but for the sake of the Lord. Or, I wonder if we unwittingly put uneven pressure on our single brothers and sisters by constantly trying to to set them up with someone. Maybe marriage is in their future, God knows, and, and maybe He might use you to that end. I mean, praise God if He does. But are you as eager to encourage them in the goodness of remaining single as you are in trying to hook them up with a spouse? We don't all need to play matchmaker, that's not a spiritual gift. And it's not a noted ministry in the church. It might be a wise way to help our brothers and sisters, but do we sometimes maybe run the risk of an overemphasis at the expense of other good things? Like Paul, what we don't want to do is put a man-made noose on anyone's neck, but rather we want to admonish our single brothers and sisters to consider the gift of singleness for as long as they're single and marriage, should the Lord grant them marriage from God's word and then give them the freedom in Christ to think for themselves and do as they wish. We have to guard Christian liberty. That's my first point. It's the longest. Second, don't assume every single person in our church needs to get married or wants to get married. Can we make space for people in our church to remain single in the manner that Paul is talking about here? Then when you're hanging out at a guy's night and you're one in other groups and a single brother meets with you, are you quick to say things like, hey, you interested in anyone? Who you got your eye on? Is that a common topic of conversation? It may not necessarily be inappropriate, but, but maybe we lean a little too heavily into that. Do we need to back off a little bit? Now, listen, they might, and if they do, praise God, we want to try to help them navigate that in a godly way. But have you ever considered that maybe they don't, and that may not be a bad thing, and it's not something that God has ever warranted us to pressure them into? When's the last time that you hung out with any of our single men or women in a mixed group and talked as a group about the gift of singleness and its benefits? About how to encourage our single brothers and sisters for as long as the Lord has them in this season to remain as they are and to leverage it for God's glory and the good of the church and the world. Maybe we need to have more of those kinds of conversations. But what if we were also quick to ask questions like, hey, are you interested in serving the Lord? What kind of ministry have you had your eye on? Well, that might be helpful. Brothers and sisters, single people aren't weird people. Thank you. They're not odd for having a strange gift that the rest of us normal people don't have like a sixth toe or something. They're the people who realize this world is passing away who chose undivided days over worldly anxieties, spiritual children through evangelism and discipleship instead of physical children, and that these brothers and sisters enjoy the exact same heritage in the Lord as you and me. If we're the kind of church that doesn't assume that everybody should get married at least not immediately, then that means that we're mindful of the fact that single people need really quality friendships. And that leads me to my third point. We need to think better about Christian friendship. It means that married Christians need to learn to relate to other Christians on things besides marriage and children. Let's be honest, often married Christians build relationships with one another not because of what they have in common in the Lord, but because they share common worldly anxieties. A single person committed to the Lord won't share those anxieties. Doesn't share the anxieties that come with raising a child or pleasing a spouse. And so you need to learn to shift gears at times. There there are times where those are appropriate and good conversation. There are times there are others. I talked to a young man recently in our church, and I said, hey brother, I'd love to get you involved in one another group. And he goes, man, that would be great, but I'm concerned. Like, what if I get, you know, I I don't want to be in a group of like married guys just talking about marriage all the time. I guarantee you he's not the only one that feels that way. We need to think well about friendship. And not have our own worldly anxieties drive the heart of our friendship. We need Christ to do it, the gospel to drive it. So we need to learn to shift gears. Too many single people in churches feel cast aside, for instance, after their single friends get married. Their single friends have moved on to a different kind of life now, and that life doesn't include them, and they feel on the outside looking in. That ought not to be the case, not if we share Christ. How do we creatively and thoughtfully get our eyes above the level of our worldly anxieties to invite our single brothers and sisters into our lives and and engage them in Christ as friends? You always have a spot here. Maybe this is a common theme in your friendships with other single Christians. You think all the time about who can I meet, who do I have my eye on, and that your relationships might be, if you're a single person, overly influenced by, look at me. You look at your friend group and you think, surely I'll end up marrying one of you. I wonder who it's going to be. I wonder how we might serve the Lord together as a married person. That may not be a bad thing. That may be a great thing. But this goes together with the second point. What if you thought about him as, as friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ first, and there was room for friendships, not just for other single people in your life, but other married people. If we're a church that doesn't assume that everybody's going to get married, at least not immediately, then we need to provide really quality friendships for our single brothers and sisters. Fourth, and this is specifically to my single brothers and sisters, do not use singleness as an excuse for worldliness. Worldliness. Notice that Paul doesn't say in chapter seven that people should stay single so they can build their careers or get more degrees or save as much money as possible or travel more before they get anchored by kids or whatever. He says the motivations for remaining as you are is to remain unanxious about the things of the Lord, about how to be holy in body and spirit, about giving yourself to the to, to to serving God in his church for the good of the gospel. Don't use your singleness as an excuse for worldliness. Fifthly and finally, and this is perhaps the most scandalous of all of the applications, it seems like from Paul's example, prudentially, not as a law, but just as a matter of wisdom, churches like ours should encourage singleness. Singleness. We encourage one another in our Bible reading and and we encourage one another in church attendance and generous giving and evangelism and praise God, we should do all of that. We talk about our futures, about where we're going to live and what kind of jobs we're going to take and so on and so forth. Praise God, we should be doing that, but we might need to build a category alongside those for remain as you are. That the Bible moves us to consider A future of singleness. Paul seems to say that's a good thing. What a gift to you. What a gift to the church. And we should do the same thing with our single members. Not because we think they have some kind of weird gift that nobody else has, but just to say, don't look over your shoulder, brother and sister. Perhaps the Lord will bring it in his time, but don't look over your shoulder, thinking that you need to be there to be holy and happy. Go all in here. Think of all the good you can do for the gospel's sake. Now, some of you single members are probably like, oh man, don't do that. That sounds dreadful. I don't want to have that conversation. And that may be for a couple of reasons. It may be because other members are just a little bit socially awkward. And when they have that conversation with you, they're just weird. Listen, we got weird people in our church and I'm one of them, the chief weird guy. And I just have weird conversations all the time. And if I do, then I'm sorry for making things awkward. But it may be because you've not completely calibrated your heart and your mind to God's word on this matter, and that you cannot imagine a happy and a holy future without a spouse. Well, if that's the case, then it may be that this passage might just be poking you in the idols a little bit, and that's a good thing. I did say that was final, but lastly... (laughs) As a church, we cannot ever, 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 from 1 Corinthians 7, think about singleness ever as second best. We need to stop thinking about it as life on hold until the real stuff comes. Do you realize Paul's argument when he says, consider the current condition, this world is passing away? The real stuff is when Christ comes. He's inaugurated it now in us, and we enjoy that now in part, but we're going to enjoy it in full. And that's the real stuff. A marriage altar is not the real stuff. It's just different. It's a different ministry. It's a different gift, but it's not better. And we need to try to guard against speaking and acting and doing ministry in a way that would imply or even just explicitly say anything other than what Paul says in verse 7, that these are both gifts from God. Brothers and sisters, the only way that we can do this is if we are a church that is grounded ultimately in the gospel. If the gospel moves to the periphery, then we're going to start raising up weird, arbitrary laws and rules, buckets for people to get into. But if Christ is at the center, then we become a church that loves to walk in freedom within all the boundaries that God has given. Would you pray with me?